Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio. Your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. Welcome to Season 18, Episode 20, powered by Instat Hockey. Offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. And Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to another level at JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. Once again, uh, we're going to start with our player development segment with Pat Malloy uh, talking about building an NHL player. This week, we're going to talk about your client, Nick Hag. And we have a running theme of players who apparently couldn't skate going into their draft year. But one of the interesting things, I went back and looked at my scouting report on his draft year. And the prevailing issue I had which I thought could be fixed, but was something that was a concern was his lateral movement and his pivoting. And I thought if that could be corrected, there's a guy who could play in your second pairing. I thought as an insulating defenseman, because he reminded me a lot of, you know, the, the Chernex and the, the defenseman in St. Louis, rangy, tall, mobile, <laughs> defenseman if you could fix that aspect of his skating so obviously you know you had him as a client uh, at a young age talk a little bit about that process of obviously you heard what we heard and you saw what I saw how did you like talk to him and then start to go okay if you want to make it to the NHL here's the things that we need to correct and this is how we're going to get there yeah, I, I mean, I came to know Nick, you know, via his agent and, and you know, they were pretty well versed on, um, listen, we think that, that this kid can be a first rounder, um, you know, based on, on the skill set that he had. But obviously, you know, skating was, was a question mark. And, you know, the more I sort of did a deep dive into Nick, I started to say, you know what, yeah, I, I think he could be a guy that could get into the first round because, you know, he had intangible tools that, you know, you don't see defensemen built like that so much anymore. And um, the one thing that, you know, for me, it jumped right out. There were some postural integrity things that we certainly needed to fix, but he was pretty fluid and athletic, especially in straight lines for a big boy. And, um, you know, when we started to dig in on that, we started to see, you know what, there's correctable things about his movements here that if we can tighten them up, obviously it's going to give him, ch- you know, a chance to be a contributing player at the National Hockey League level. And, you know, that's what we did. I mean, typical to, to the process that I'll use, we started to do sort of that analysis from a technical still skill standpoint. But one of the first things we did was was really involve our strength and conditioning staff um, to get a physical makeup on him because as a, you know, I think he was six foot six or six foot five at that time, um, you know, long limb player, knock knees, um, you know, at 17 years old or 18 years old in the draft year. It was a thing where, you know, it wasn't a magical pill where it was just let's do these skating drills and it's going to correct itself. It, it really started off the ice and then taking a very athletic, you know, sports science minded approach to correcting athletic movement. And, um, you know, the rest was history. He put in the work and and, you know, but it was very detailed and monotonous work to ensure from a, a postural standpoint, one, from a, an athletic standpoint two you know, we were strengthening the right areas to correct um, you know, a movement inequity with, with, you know, a bit of a knock needness in the way that he moved. 
Pat, can you contrast him with uh, your other client there, Brent Clark, who also suffers from knock knee syndrome, but is a lot shorter? Uh, you know, as an industry, we love to lump things together sometimes, but uh, this is, I think, a perfect example of individual case studies where just because they're both knock kneed, just because they're both defensemen, and just because they have long limbs doesn't mean that they're similar in terms of how you develop them. No, for sure. And, you know, Nick was, was certainly someone that was a little bit more in tune with the fact that this was an area and he recognized, hey, if, if I can, you know, clean this up, I can add dimensions to my game. Um, you know, typical of, of really tall players, great torque shooter, really hard, you know, inherently hard shot from, you know, the ability of torque that he's able to create at his size with long limbs, whereas Brant's a little bit different makeup, obviously, um, and plays, you know, more of a tactician style game maybe than Nick does. So he's... You know, the knock needness that you see out of him has sort of resulted in 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 far more use of his inside edges, that sort of 10 and 2 movement um, that, that you'll frequently hear about. Um, and he's trying to dissect the game, whereas Nick's a little more cyclical in the way that he approaches, you know, the game and, and certainly comes with an element of grit that you don't necessarily see in Branton. Um, you know, considerably taller allows him, affords him different things like reach and different opportunities to, to make his game uh, effective. So um, similar, you know, approaches in terms of how you'd break down um, how to fix, if you will, some of the inequities that would allow each guy to you know fulfill their trajectory. Obviously a little more demanding in terms of Nick with longer limbs and a, and a taller, you know, a taller, longer limbed player creates a different set of challenges than a, you know, a six foot six one player that's a little bit more compact um, and and doesn't necessarily. And they've got completely different athletic makeups, too. So it was um, similar, but different, if that makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about that? The time frame that from when you started with Nick and then broke broke him down, built a you know, profile of what he is and what you need to do. And then step-by-step step, get to a point where there was improvement, but also to the point where you're happy with the results. Did you, you know, do you explain to him that this can end up being not a one or two or three month process, but this is going to probably spread out over a couple of years. till we get to the point where we're happy with your progression? Yeah. I mean, it was a multi-year process between, you know, me visiting Toronto area and, and him coming to Ottawa in the summers um, and during the off seasons, it's, you know, it was a multi-year process. Um, and, you know, I, I'm just so happy that a player like him is, is starting to see some, some rubber hit the road in terms of their ability to contribute to the national hockey league level, because he put in a lot of work and it's, it's not, uh, it's not the glorious fancy stuff you see on the internet, um, it's, it's a lot of long, dry, um, put the effort in. You don't see immediate results, you know, building a body, um, building a player's movement abilities is something that takes time. And, uh, especially when they're still developing, when they're still growing and they're, they're still developing strength that they'll use as a man at the national hockey league level as a teenager, that's, you know, that's a daunting task. And in full credit to him, um, you know, I think he looked at it as a challenge and, and obviously I, I think you know, Vegas got a steal with him in the second round. I really believe that, you know, people might have missed on him and he, he could have, should have, would have maybe gone earlier. But I'm just so happy to see, you know, he's an everyday guy now and 
Um, I think the future is really bright because he continues, you know, he's, he's of the right makeup. He's a well brought up kid. It's a great family. And, um, you know, he's about the right stuff and recognizing the things he can control versus the things he can't and um, really putting the work in that's required to make tangible changes is, is maybe the biggest thing for me, for him and, and the success he's starting to have. When you look at, his development now, when you went back to when you first had him, where do you feel he's improved the most? Um, I think the biggest thing is he's recognizing, you know, how to weaponize his size and the mobility that he possesses, meaning, you know, he, he's really good at, at keeping the play appropriately close to him, um, using things like strong reach, but also, you know, his footwork, when you get to the pro level, obviously it's one of the first things that, you know, a lot of teams will work on is just ensuring footwork is really clean with defensemen. And so I, I think, you know, the work that he's done is showed in the fact that his, his footwork and his simplicity and the way that he sets his footwork up doesn't leave him exposed often. Um, and when you've got a wingspan, like a 747, never hurts either if you get yourself into a little bit of trouble. So I, I think the biggest thing is he's, he's figured out, how to play at that level. He's figured out how to allow his skating to provide him the chance to kill plays. Um, you know, and then sometimes in major junior, like he was a big point guy in major junior, right? Uh, I think at one point he was top, you know, top three at one point in, in points for defensemen in the Ontario hockey league. And, um, you know, that's a different animal and that's a different game. And obviously with a big heavy shot and doing some things on the power play that he's not necessarily transitioned to at the national hockey league level, he's found a way to be very useful in, in sort of that shutdown capacity, killing penalties and, you know, watched him recently. And, and it's, it's by virtue of, you know, making sure we're not letting the things he can't do get in the, the way of the things that he can. And just so happy with, with what he's been able to accomplish and in that simple approach to his footwork. Is a matter, matter of simply just having smooth movements for him and not getting stuck in a position where he has to react really quickly where it's like there's these more smooth transitions because of his length and his range and how long his legs are. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, uh, you'll hear me talk a lot about this, the idea of time saved is time earned. I mean, he's really good at creating appropriate levels of gap, uh, you know, appropriate amounts of space between him and his check that'll allow him to create the mobility he needs to, to shut down plays and kill plays. And, um, you know, he's an intelligent kid and moves pucks cleanly. Um, again, he's, he's not necessarily ever going to be a guy to lead the rush, but what you can appreciate is, you know, what you're getting when he comes to the rink in terms of, you know, a simple approach to moving the puck and, and staying close to the play that allows him to, you know, to kill things on transition if they become a problem. It's interesting that you say that because I remember back in the conversation we had with Rick, Rick Nash, and he said, like, the most annoying defensemen to play against, the most frustrating, were the ones that just simply just would get in your way because of their range. And they don't do anything more but have an appropriate gap um, that forces them to hesitate, forward to hesitate a little bit. And I thought that was like, when I watch Nick Hague now, that's what it is. It's just, he's just irritatingly always in the way. Legs and arms is like going through what, you know, the St. Louis guys said, just going through a car wash, right? You're always hit with something from that respect. So he's he's so accurate with his stick, you know, I mean, that's one of the things defensemen that get to that level, the sooner they figure out how to use their stick, um, you know, and and he's picked it up really quickly. 
Well, Pat, once again, thanks for coming on the show, giving us insight on Nick Hag, and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio, but we'll be back right after this. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back in Powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're with Jason Buchel in our Scouts Perspective segment. This week's topic is the role of the Director of Amateur Scouting during the NHL trade deadline. So, Jason, you were in that uh, role for quite some time in Florida and give us a little background of what it's like to be a director of amateur scouting when the trade deadline is starting to loom, you know, a couple of weeks, two, three weeks before it's happening. And then as it, you know, funnels down towards that, you know, the last 24, 48 hours, what's it like for you in that situation of trying to collaborate not only with the management staff, but with the pro staff and your player development staff to collect all that data and information on the players that, you know, are being maybe thrown your way to your manager. Yeah. So it starts to kind of filter up, Shane, like, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, you know, when you come out of your mid season meetings and your list is whatever your list is, um, the next level conversation that's going to take place is um, between the general manager and myself. And it's going to be, you know, what is the realistic depth of the draft, for example. And, and in relation to the draft capital that you have in your organization. And then, you know, there's going to be instances where they'll throw you a name, whether it be a prospect from another organization or, um, you know, a trade scenario with an active NHL player. Um, and the question is going to be pretty simple. Like, do you project that, you know, if we bring this player in and if it's especially as term, um, do you project that in, in this amount of time that this is going to be more viable to our team, not only now, but into the future? So 
Um, you know, I'll be giving them information on prospects that have been previously drafted that I've been scouting. Uh, you know, obviously I scout for the upcoming draft, but it's also important for me to keep tabs on previously drafted players. Um, so I'll give them intel into that. And that goes to player development as well. Uh, they do the same. Um, and the pro scout, uh, the director of pro scouting. So like when I was in Florida, Al Tour, um, him and I would be in constant communication with each other um, just in the regard to what he's seeing out there. If it's an American League player, a college player uh, that we might include in a deal, um, you know, we we have those discussions. And of course, it filters all the way up to the top to the, you know, in my situation, mostly with Dale Talon in my career. And um, but even going back to myself in Nashville, I remember when when we acquired Peter Forsberg years ago, years ago, and uh, David Poyle called me about, uh, you know, some prospects in the Ontario Hockey League on the cusp of making the the uh, the Peter Forsberg uh, Forsberg deal with the Philadelphia Flyers at the time. And, um, you know, again, it's it's there's so many layers, so many tiers, so much information, so much capital that goes into these decisions. And uh, let's just say that the uh, communication is fluid the whole time. When you're looking at it from a communication perspective, one thing I know is that some teams, uh, they don't really look at the following draft season because uh, it's too far away. But do you feel that there's an advantage in at least knowing it to some degree? Because you might be trading future picks from that year that, that's coming up. So is that one of those situations where when you were a director of scouting, you made sure to know next season's draft to at least some degree. It's not obviously it takes a long time to, to develop a, a final list, as you know, uh, but do you feel that there is significant value in making sure that you do know the following draft when it comes to trade deadlines? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Too. As a matter of fact, in the cap universe that we live in right now, that the importance of that is changed. Like it, it used to be a time where a trade deadline, you know, even when I started in the NHL and I'm dating myself, you know, 20 years or so, but, you know, back then we would only trade in that uh, draft cycle. So you very rarely would see, um, you know, while we're in 2023 now, you would very rarely see like a, a 2025. So, you know, two or three drafts out. That rarely happened back then. They would call it future considerations. Yes, sir. Uh, but still, you know, on paper, they wouldn't, they wouldn't trade way out nowadays because, everybody's managing their depth charts a certain way and you got, uh, you know, you have to forecast the cap and then you have to um, obviously forecast. You have more tools today, right? Like you have more video, you have more, uh, the boots on the ground are more, are better informed uh, of where to go than they were uh, even back then. Um, so your knowledge of the upcoming draft classes is deeper now than it ever has been. And um, last trade deadline, I know for a fact that there was, uh, and I'm sure you guys heard the same, uh, people already knew how deep this draft was going to be in 2023. So they were starting to align themselves with this draft class in terms of some of those decisions. Jason, talk about the synergy you'd have to have with Al Tour, who was the director of pro scouting, in talking about, okay, this is what I saw this player in his junior, say he was a CHL player, and now this player has graduated to the American League and you've he's been passed off to the pro guys. Okay, this is what I saw here. Now, what have you seen since? And so you can sort of like you piece together the progression and development of that player. Yeah, it's it's really important. Um so we'll see if you have a player that's graduated to the American Hockey League and he's even in year number two, for example, and um, I had had a book on him for at least three years before he turned pro. 
Um, you know, with the Europeans, of course, some of those guys, I might have seen them for four or five years. Um, it's really important to have that line of communication with the director of pro scouting because, to your point, um, roles change. And they want to know if the player um, – they don't see enough of the player doing whatever it is. Um, you know, they don't see enough energy in the depth role. They knew that he could score a little bit when he came into the American League, but now they're looking – you know, they already have a, a top six group that are doing a lot of scoring. Can he provide more energy? Can he kill penalties? Can he do other things? And we'll we'll have those discussions, you know, and it'll be, yes, I've seen him, you know, he's close to a complete player at the uh, in his progression in Europe or wherever he was, college hockey, major junior. And you point some of those things out to your director of pro scouting. But there has to be a real, um, there has to be continuity there, right? We have to be able to understand the way that we look at players and we have to appreciate, um, you can't create a bias against each other, I guess, is the easiest way for me to put it. Like, uh, we all look for certain things and, uh Al Tour and I specifically, it was an outstanding relationship. It still is that way to this day. Like we just love talking about players and um, we were really good at uh, communicating with each other. It was really important. Do you ramp it up when it comes to live viewings and making sure you have enough intel before you make a trade? Because I feel like during the draft season, there's specific times where I feel everybody ramps up their view count. But to be honest with you, from my, my perspective, I, I you know I've never been part of a trade deadline, so I never think about having to ramp up my viewings at this specific point. Uh, obviously, you know the March and April, you really get going and then try to see as much as you can. But where, where are you in terms of uh, where are you? decide to put your viewings where you decide to place the viewings and as a staff do you guys communicate that in advance and say all right we know trade deadlines coming we have a couple of weeks here to see a b and c so on the amateur side um the guys on my staff they wouldn't really make any changes to their schedule or strategy because they're so focused on this year's draft class for me personally if I had um, questions coming down from above, Dale, Al, uh, Brian McCabe, about whoever it was, um, I would make some adjustments, uh, mostly after meetings. So if meetings uh, were in middle January, let's just say, um, from then until the beginning of March, certainly I would make more of an effort to go out and see maybe a college player a few more times. Or even at times, like Dale actually had me going to – um, you know, some NHL games, even, you know, like Chicago or wherever I was on the tour and, you know, just pop in my, pop my head in to see some NHL games. So my staff, it didn't change much for me. It was fluid for what I would probably consider about a six week period of time. Um, but overall on the amateur side, you pretty much, our guys have given them all their, their, their toolbox of information and it just comes down to tweaking things. Al, on the other hand, that's their busiest time. Like on the pro side, that's six weeks after uh, after their meetings. They're they're all over the place. It's exceptionally busy. There's not a day off. You find that um, it was easier just to leave your guys where you were, where they were, and and that actually strategically is the best thing to do is keep these keep your amateur staff where they need to be, and that you as the as the head of that department could wander in and out of these different, you know, based on what was requested of you from up above so that, you know, you and Al, you know, and Brian McCabe and, uh, you know, could have some synergy in terms of what you're looking at and trying to like piece those together. Cause you know, the conversations between different GMs on trades is fluid in that respect. And sometimes the trades get 
more amplified in the discussion and sometimes it wanes. So you gotta, you kind of have to like jump around more than, than you normally would. Yeah. I, I, I didn't want my guys on the amateur side to pri over prioritize that this time of year, because it really like their job. I'll, let me put it this way. Our job is to prepare for the draft. You make the selections. So do other teams across the, the landscape. And then you hand them off to player development. Like you just hand them off because a new cycle starts immediately. As you know, Shane, like before you know it, we're at the Helenka Gretzky, you know, and while you go to your rookie camp, if you're, you know, one of those guys, and then you get a couple of weeks and you're right back into another draft cycle. So my amateur guys, I never had them uh, too embedded on in anything going on in the pro side. Never, because they just didn't, you can only, it's dangerous to know very little and carry a big opinion. <laughs> like that's a very dangerous thing. So uh, you're better off just sticking to uh, what you do best. You also find as well, and this was something that I had learned from actually from Al Tour and from Mike Penny when I was in Vancouver is you can get caught in tunnel vision. So if the amateur guys are only watching amateur, then you go ask them to watch other stuff or, you know, they're watching different things. A guy who's a 20, it just, sometimes it, it veers them off. And like you said, they can get caught with, you know, a little bit of bias in that respect. hundred percent. And, you know, it can just be, uh, it can muddy the waters. It can be more confusing than it does any good. So, no, you have to uh, stick. You have to stay in your lane. I, I don't. I can't put it to any different than that. Like, if Al didn't need an opinion from me, I'm not going to give it. You know, if he asks, I'm going to give it. But I'm not just voluntarily going to go out there and change my schedule and go see something uh, outside of my jurisdiction, if you will, um, just because I want to or I want to be part of that process. Uh, the amateur guys and myself as a director on that side, we got enough going on, right? Like, it's it's always busy on our side, so. Only when you're asked, otherwise stay in your lane. Jason, thanks once again for coming on the show. Always appreciate it and look forward to speaking to you next week. Uh, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. That's uh, Jason Bukula. Uh, Brad and I are going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. 
Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, bantam, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back empowered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're now going to talk about the Vancouver Canucks prospects. And first on the list, because their system is not very deep, we don't actually have a lot of players to talk about. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks over the last few years have traded a lot of picks away, which has really obviously hurt uh, their depth overall. But the first player we'll talk about is just uh, Jonathan LeCaramacchi. And one of the things that, you know, and I understand the Vancouver marketplace exceptionally well. I lived there for, you know, 16 years. I was in the press box for probably 14 years, if not 16 years. So I, I think I understand not only the media landscape, but the fan landscape. And they are so, um, desperate to have good prospects and to have a good farm system that any first round pick that comes into their system, they just go bananas over and they just put a lot, there's a lot of pressure put on the kid and which isn't fair. And I think like you know, obviously has a goal scoring ability, but he's 18. And I, you know, I had said on there in the Vancouver media, like how long do you think he's going to take? I'm like, probably another four years before he should really jump into an NHL lineup because there's a lot of other things he has to continue to work on, but what he does really exceptionally well is NHL caliber, but that's not enough to play at NHL minutes on a regular basis. So that's why I said, like, no, he needs to stay in Sweden for a couple of years, then come to the American hockey league, then see what he is at 20, then see what he is at 21 and then go from there from that standpoint, like watching what you saw in his draft year, then what you've seen this year, and the progression and what happened at the world juniors thoughts on him as a player and the progression that he is making, because there's talent there. I think just like patience has to be the key for not only for the Vancouver Canucks and their fans, but for J- Jonathan McCarramacki as well. Mm. So the thing with McCarramacki is that um, he falls into the description of an elite, an elite shooter who is not a long-term projection to have possession driving ability so you have a potential 30 goal scorer but there's inherent risk because of how raw he is and the fact that he's going to be a complementary piece in the top six and there's no there's no uh, backup situation for him right you if know, he doesn't and, score goals what is there exactly you know when the when arnie t800 gets gets uh lands through the chest and he gets that backup battery cell that comes back to life that's not like right so like he's he's a one and done situation if things go wrong um and that's that's why you saw him i, I think some people would have saying at the time fallen to vancouver some people project him to be top 10 um i don't like to put players in my top 10 unless they're line drivers Hockey prospect, same situation. Uh, we made an exceptional rule for this kid, because, similar to Caulfield, right? When you look at the projection with Cole Caulfield, if you get 30 goals, you're very satisfied as long as he's not a liability defensively. Just has to be average. Top. 
just has to be average, right? Yeah. Lakira Mackey at least projects to be average uh, if things go right because he does have instincts to be willing to take a hit to make a play, to sacrifice his body. You've seen him do it. I've seen him do it yeah. in the garden system. He can make some good NHL choices in, in that stretch. respect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Now, what's interesting, one of the reasons I bring up his last season's performance is that I did see him become invisible for an entire tournament. It might sound familiar to some people. And right. that was the U18 Five Nations. And the reason he became invisible and usually the reason that shooters do become invisible is because they can't time their skating routes and they cannot recognize the, the defensive patterns that they can then take advantage of. You need, you need to be able to recognize how defensemen operate so you can break them down and find ways in at Lakaramaki and Caulfield size. It's a little contrast here. Um, you have they have to be able to find their backdoor routes they have to be able to time entering traffic and then darting in and out of that traffic on the power play we talked about it with pat a little bit here where you you have to be able to uh recognize when the defense is targeting you and then specifically finding your finding more space so you can get additional time to get your shot so at that tournament his skating pattern recognition wasn't very good and as a result he shot down I find that's basically what happened here with the U20s is that he got drowned out and he became invisible because the pace was too much for him to process at, at this point in time. Yeah. And see, and the concern with that is you can get away with that in the SHL or in the, in the Osvenskin because of the size and dimensions of the rink. There's more time and space available to you. But the minute you get into North American ice, if you don't understand, you don't have pattern recognition and understand where you need to go and how to change your skating to to find time and space to find those seams, that's going to be a, a prop problematic potentially for him. So that's why I suggested in the beginning of the segment is really time is going to be his greatest ally. Like that's where I think he needs to stay two more years in, in the Swiss elite league and not come over till he's 20. Don't bring him any old, older than that. Then bring him in as like maybe a 21 year old or a 20 year old at max. And then into the American hockey league. Cause I think he needs that time to to develop that because that's going to be a transition for him coming out of that ice dimension and that style of play to the North American style in the American Hockey League. Yeah, the, the, there is there is still tremendous upside in this player. Just 100%. because somebody has a down year doesn't oh, yeah, no, mean they're written off. There's tons of prospects who've had uh, down years. We always talk about on the show. Development curves are very rarely linear, especially when you have a prospect who's very raw in some areas in terms of just physically raw. That was one 100%. thing that was really interesting about Lakaramaki is that he is an elite shooter. And his kinetic chain, his ability to explode uh, into his release from a static position, was already elite, yet he was physically underdeveloped. So, so what's it going to be like when he's that, developed? Yeah. It, exactly. It reminded yeah. me a little bit of Rodi and Amirov's situation, to be honest with you. That's a good uh, point. Similar build. Uh, Amirov's bigger, but similar uh, uh, build in terms of like just limb proportions in their draft season and everything. And uh, Amirov was already a pretty good sniper in his initial draft year going playing against uh, 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 pros. You know, it was one of those situations where, it was, well, if Amirov can add another 15 pounds of muscle here, he's going to look really dangerous. Right. And that that's kind of what the thought process is with Lukaramaki, too, is just if the kid can add weight and then he can add an extra dimension that's not currently present in terms of hard skill. That doesn't mean hitting. He's not a hitter. He's not going to be a big time hitter. But what that does mean is that when he's along the walls, he can win some battles 
he can apply apply himself in a way uh, to buy himself time and space in small area situations. He can cycle correctly, right? And he can, and he, he can become more dangerous off the rush if he gets another level peak power output within his linear skating. So when he's in open ice, he can be more threatening, right? And so you add those little pockets of dimensions there, then you got yourself a real player. And the thought process is that he could, you know, it, you can develop those. As long as you get stronger, a lot of his issues, just becoming a stronger skater, just becoming uh, physically thick enough and strong enough and statically strong enough so that he can remain uh, a force along the walls, at least to a degree to just maintain possession momentarily so he can set up give-and-go sequences, cycling sequences. It should allow him uh, the, the necessary, it should give him the necessary skill set so he become an excellent 30-goal scorer at the NHL level, right? But again, Nonlinear. You got to give the kid time, and believe me, just because he's been bad at the U20s and hasn't had the season one in the SHL, doesn't mean you won't see him in the NHL in the next three, four years here. Right. We only got a couple of minutes left, so we'll talk about Elias Patterson, the defenseman, and then we'll continue to talk to him after uh, we get into the next segment. So, what I see with Elias Patterson is potentially a third pairing, insulating defensive defenseman. That's what I see, and that's what I've saw going into his draft year. This is what I continue to see in this season. And he's another guy where I think you need to keep him in, in the Swedish elite league and in those leagues till he's probably 21 and then bring him over to the American hockey league. Now, could he survive based on his size and the style of play in the American hockey league is a 20? Sure. But I just don't see the point of rushing because I don't think the Vancouver Canucks can afford to make any developmental mistakes because they have such a slim uh, prospect pool to begin with. Yeah, Elias Pettersson, uh, I know this sounds strange. He's one of my favorite player types. I love lanky, rangy, raw, uh, insulating defensemen that can uh, cover distance rapidly and are very difficult to deal with in their own end. Uh, I think I think it's a very useful player type for the modern game, especially as, as teams uh, shrink down a, a little bit more. It's not as much as people think. We've talked yeah. about that before. This is, the, the NHL is still a big man's league. It will, it will always be that. Um, but uh, he, that doesn't mean he still can't take advantage of, of dealing with pr- players like Jonathan LeCaramacki and Cole Caulfield yeah. in, the, in the future. These smaller wingers are, are prey for player types like this. So the, the thing with Pedersen is that he was already extremely athletic, cover ground. He's very difficult to deal with. He knew how to use his range to some degree. The, the big problem with his game is that when you look at his long-term outlook, his exit – and ability to uh, uh, pass the puck under pressure during retrieval sequences was average to below average. And, right. and this was the J20 level, right? right? Yeah. So, you know, life is a box shot because you never know where you're going to get. That was the situation when he was trying to move a puck, right? Uh, the other aspect to him is that he works mentally. He operates mentally very similar to Martin Farivari at the line, uh, meaning that he can shoot a puck. Mechanically, he's a gifted shooter, doesn't yeah. see the ice that well. And that, that's where that, that defensive projection comes from is more of a shutdown role because it doesn't have the playmaking uh, to, to go with some of his other skill set. No, and that's that's a fair assessment. And I think he, you know, that, that pretty much sums him up. But we're going to take 
a quick break on Hockey Prospect Radio, but we'll be back right after these short messages. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There's no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, bantam, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back empowered by Instat Hockey, offering a large data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're continuing to talk about the Vancouver Canucks prospects. Next on our list is uh, Danilia Klimovich. And one of the things that really concerned me about what happened with Klimovich is bringing a player that age into the American Hockey League. I always cringe when an 18-year-old or 19-year-old comes into the American Hockey League because the American League is an is a meat grinder. And if you're not mentally and emotionally ready for that transition, it can really impact you, a player mentally and emotionally. And I think in Klimovich's standpoint, it was just too much too soon. How, how often have we seen that happen to prospects, whether they get thrown into the NHL too early or into the American League too early, you get chucked into the deep end of the pool with a, like an anchor. Here, kids swim and survive. And I don't want a kid to survive. Like that's a bad situation to put a human being in because they're, they're surviving instead of developing and improving because they're just trying to not get killed. And that's really what I thought Klimovich was in his first year in American Hockey League was really that. And this year, I've started to see the steps and the maturation and the more consistency moving forward. And I know you were really high on Klimovich going into his draft year. And that's where I saw the promise. I said, you're like, hey, watch this kid more. And I did. I'm like, okay, this is what I saw too. You know, I think we're in pretty good alignment of what we he could potentially be. The concern for me is the development path of like, now can you almost kind of rein him back and roll things back, roll the clock back a little bit um, to sort of simplify his game and then add pieces again. You almost have to like break him down and then build them back up again based on what happened last season. Yeah, very unique situation where he's coming from Belarus Fashai, which is Belarus's right. pro league there. 
and then immediately transition to the A. That's never been done, to my knowledge. I, I don't think it's ever been done uh, successfully to make an NHL player. Now, there is a counter-argument. One thing with Klimovich that was, uh, admittedly for myself, a little worrisome, was you look at him from a skills perspective. Skill-wise, he was an A-rated player. Simple as that. Top 20 in that draft, no question. Skill-wise. When you look at his mental makeup and his mental maturity within his draft year, uh, there was a lot of junior elements. There was also a tremendous amount of junior qualities within his game, meaning he didn't know how to mitigate risk. He didn't know how to present himself as a pro player. Uh, I remember one of the worst performances he had was at the U18s uh, against Russia. It was, he was yeah. horrible in that performance. But then you saw him at the World Championships. I thought he was excellent against Russia and Switzerland. So what I could what I, what I could gauge from that is that maybe Vancouver saw some of that and said, well, he looks way better when he's in a structured pro system than he does when he's running around doing his own thing in either Belarus Vashai, which he did, or at the U18 level on his team, right, uh, in Belarus. So, yes, is it going to hold him developmentally in terms of developing some of the skill sets that's necessary to translate? I think so. But in terms of understanding the pro game and getting the mental maturity necessary off the ice to play as a pro – I think that the AHL probably actually probably benefited him. So there's a give and take. It benefited him mentally, most likely, but then it held his skill set statically. I think right. that and that was – so what you're seeing now is his opportunity to take off with his skill set. Well, he's trying to make up for that, that, that situation. And the question remains, and we don't know. Because, you know, the Vancouver has a new development, a player development staff. So there's no proof or concept of looking back at previous work to gauge some kind of indication of what the future may hold. Now, the past doesn't always tell you what the future is going to be, but it leaves you breadcrumbs. So you get an idea of and you get a, a direction. So we don't know that. So we don't know. It's a new coaching staff, a new head coach in American League, a new player development staff. So there's some unknowns there that haven't really revealed itself yet. So for us at this point, it's still we're waiting to see how things unfold before you can make like a fair assessment. And we talk about this all the time. It's like, we can't make a full assessment until all the data is collected. And in this case, because of the new coaching, new head coach and the new player development department, we just don't quite know yet. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is uncharted territory in terms of the fact that again, he's from Vashaya comes over the AHL and then they have a new development uh, a group coming in place with the Steen twins and a couple of other people. So it's, it's almost, it's very interesting to monitor. I, I feel like honestly this year, like he, he, to me, I haven't seen him a ton. I don't I'm a scout, so I don't get to watch the AHL very much, but the, what I have seen, uh, I feel like I've seen before in, in Vishaya, but now it's coming out in the AHL and that's what you want. You want his exceptional skills to flourish in the right situations at the right time on the ice. That was the issue. It was the application of his skills. It's not the skills themselves that are an issue. It's the application of them. I feel like he's cleaned up his game a lot. And that from, from again, I'll always tell you the truth, limited sample relative to a whole lot, lot of other players because he's in the A. But, I, I, you know, I'm, I've been impressed from what I saw this season relative to last. And I'll say this. We talked about development curves. We talked about how it's nonlinear with Pedersen. One thing that's very impressive to me about this player is if you looked at him in his initial draft year at the starting point of Vishaya, and you look at him now, you would never think it's only two years. 
he really, he really has, you know, he's put in work. Let's put it that way. He's put in a whole lot of work. He, he really does have a better attention to detail off the puck. He understands how to time his skill set. I just said, he knows how to apply it better on the ice. And uh, there's a whole lot of the one thing about him is he's one of those unique hybrid power forwards. Those usually always take the longest to be successful. You know, Matt Boldy needed time. Matt Boldy had a down year in his initial year in college too. Everybody was saying Matt Boldy wasn't what people thought he was going to be now look at him right it takes yeah. time yeah 100 we have about uh, just less than four minutes left in hour one let's talk about archer Seeloffs uh, as a goaltender i know we had chatted about him prior to him being drafted by vancouver and thoughts on him and and that continued to develop because i know he was a guy that you like to really closely monitor yeah so uh, interesting story or background about silos i i was uh just I talked to his agent for his, his draft year because I was watching him in the Latvian league. And I said, Hey, is your, uh, is your client here on the map with anybody or anything? Maybe I can help give him a boost. Uh, and I said, I'd write a black book profile for him. And I did. And, um, you know, he, he stood out to me in, in the Latvian league. He looked like a legitimate goalie prospect. And I, I was wondering if he was going to come over to the CHL. And at that time, I didn't know that, that uh, Vancouver was going to draft him or anything. Um, but I, uh, I was told that he was, he was, in fact, on the map. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll boost him. Then he went to the U18s. That helped him. And uh, then he got drafted. And now I'll, I'll admit something there. I did not put him on my goalie list. Uh, I did not think he was going to be an NHL caliber goalie. I did think he was going to be a good pro, though. And I, I did think he was going to be drafted. And so I, I wanted to highlight him, uh, something I try to do every year with a couple of kids that are in unique uh, uh, development areas and such as Lafayette. Not many people get to see him, right? So uh, same with Klimovich. Uh, right. So – uh, it's one of those situations where I am basically blown away by his development this year. Like what? And so we've talked about it. I mean, th- we don't know this new staff that well, but based off of Klimovich and, and, and Silovs, they're doing okay. Right. So, uh, you know, our arters for me, I watched him at the world's last season there. Um, and I came away as being like, okay, good pro, but I don't think he's NHL caliber still. And I'm coming off that. He just won his first game six, two over Philly there. Uh, an impressive performance. I thought he looked pretty good. Uh, so Testament Tartars, uh, testament to the fact that, again, curve-wise, you know, I, I remember uh, my, my boss, Mark, Mark Edwards, ripping me a bit, saying he ain't looking very good in Barry. Maybe we shouldn't have wiped him up a bit. But, uh, you know, it's one of those situations where that was his first year transition to North America, and uh, and and it took him a bit of time to to adjust the OHL game. And uh, it's not like Barry was the, the best defensive uh, structure no, team in front of the time yeah. either. Yeah, so so um, you know he's a he's a goalie who can flourish in chaos sometimes, and I bring that up because in Vancouver's defensive system, uh, he's going to have to learn how to flourish in chaos. So yeah, he's, he's doing he's doing okay for himself. I'm just I'm really happy for him. I'm impressed by what I've seen. I I honestly really hope I'm wrong. I I did not put him on my goalie list. I'm not going to pretend here. Oh, I I knew about him. I had him on my list. No, I did not. I did not think he'd become a pro NHL goalie. Now I look like I'm probably wrong, and I'm very happy about it. Well, that's one of the things is, you know, you give credit to Ian Clark and and the department because, you know, he helped obviously Thacker Demko move up into, you know, into the NHL as well. So because we don't know when we're putting a list together where that player is going to and then particularly goaltenders, who's going to be doing goalie development with them, because that can radically change the probability and increase the probability of a player's success. So that changes everything in that respect as well. So curious to see how he continues to develop. We're going to take a break on Hockey Prospect Radio, but stay tuned for hour two, and we'll be right back right after this. 
The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. This is Hour 2 brought to you by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to another level at Junior Prospect Hockey League.com. We're speaking with Mike McMahon from College Hockey News. Mike, thanks for coming on the show again. Always appreciate it. Thanks for having me back. So let's get into the scenario that happened at the Bean Pot, where, and I, look, I despise the shootout to end games. I really don't like it um, because it's not a team effort. And I know you have to end the game at some point, and, you know, cameras got to stop rolling and you got to stop broadcasting. But there has to be a better way, not just in college hockey, but we're going to talk about college hockey specifically. I'm trying to find a way where it's, you know, three on three and four on four. And I know that's not natural hockey, but there has to be a combination of that in a number of, you know, in those scenarios, plus a number of minutes to get us to a point where it, it ends the game. And what I would also consider, I want to get your thoughts on this is to put situations in place or rules in place where it punishes coaches for playing defensively because you know what they're like right they'll like send their guys back and they'll circle and wait and that'll just drive me bananas is that once you go over the red line you can't go back to circle back to retreat not allowed to do that and if you do then it's a face-off in the other end like in your end right and you're not allowed to change your lines and the opposition team is that's what i would do it's like thoughts about like the you know, the response of what happened with the bean pot and the shootout and then, you know, the discussions in college hockey about trying to find a different way to end games that is more hockey than a skills competition. 
Yeah, I'm on board with the red line rule. I've talked about that too. I, I like that suggestion. Yeah. The face off, you can't change lines because it all it is a little less so in the NHL, but from what I've seen in, in college hockey over the last two years, it ends up just being an endless game of regroups. I mean, right. teams that have the puck in the offensive zone that willingly carry it all the way back down the ice behind their own net to change out two guys to set up another breakout because the breakout that they had, they didn't get numbers going into the offensive zone. So it's just this endless game of keep away. It's like, it's just all about possession. They don't want to give the puck up. So no one's taking shots unless it's the perfect shot that they get off of a three on two or a two on one or whatever. And it's so hard to watch sometimes. Ironically enough, the Beanpot game wasn't really like that. They had some up and down chances. Yeah, that's true. Kind of what you expect three on three to look like. Um, but it just nine times out of 10, it's not that. And it's so painful to watch. Uh, the shootout itself, I don't like the shootout either. Uh, I, it's one of those things where the NCAA wants all the games that are going to count in the pairwise to end the same way. So when it came to the bean pot, they said, okay, it's got to be a three on three overtime and then it has to go. Well, it has to be a three on three overtime because that's how we did for five minutes. Cause that's how we decide every other game that counts in the pairwise. And we want them all to be the same. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. I'm, I'm on board with that's what you want to do. Fine. But after that five minutes, specifically with the bean pot, in a non-conference game or in a conference game, they'll go to a shootout to decide the, the point breakage for the standings. Right. Non-conference game, they don't always go to the shootout because it doesn't matter. So sometimes they just don't do it. They just end the game in a tie. I don't see why specifically to the bean pot, why they couldn't say, well, we'll do five minutes of three on three because that's what we have to do. But at the conclusion of that, we'll break, they'll make ice, they'll put 20 minutes back on the clock, and we're going to play five on five until we have a winner and do continuous overtime until we have a winner. Or you, like, you do four and four. The reason yeah. why I'd rather have almost four on four in that respect is because it eliminates coaches from using primarily their fourth line and their fifth and sixth defensemen. So basically you're thrown over the boards is your first two lines in pairings, right? And your top four D, which are more offensively inclined instead of like playing some ridiculous trap and counter punching and hoping for a mistake. Cause you know what coaches are like, I love them, but sometimes I want to strangle them for like, just like taking the joy and offense out of the game. And this is coming from a defenseman, a defensive defenseman for that matter, but it's just, <laughs> it's not fun to watch right from that respect. So uh, I'm curious to see how they're going to do that. And I understand with pairwise, right? Like if I say pairwise up in Canada, because unless you're really familiar with college hockey, they're like, what are you talking about? Like they have no clue. Right. But that you have to, because it's such an expansive number of teams. When yeah. you're looking at 60 teams to deal with, you know, in, in CHL, we have three different leagues, you know, 22, 20 and 18. So it doesn't really matter, but you know, they all come together to Memorial cup. So it's different from that respect. So yeah, that's where, that's what makes it interesting. I know they're, they're sort of married to pairwise in that respect. And there really isn't, I don't think there's really another system that would be better that I've seen. Now, somebody could have built one that I haven't seen yet, but which would be cool. But I like, I'm curious to see what happens because I I just, I don't mind the ties. I'd almost rather, I'd rather have ties than than a shootout. Yeah. So would I, I don't know what they're going to do moving forward too, because now there's talk, the NCAA is talking about expanding the size of tournaments across the board, not just for hockey, but for, for other sports. Right, um, sports. So they're talking about potentially fifty percent of teams qualifying for the national tournament. So now, then you're going from sixteen teams to 
be about 32. You'd be about doubling the size of the tournament. So do you need the pairwise then, or do you go to some other system where the, the top four or five from each league get in and you play some sort of regional tournament to then decide who goes on to the next round, like almost kind of the way uh, the CHL does it, where you have your right. league playoffs and then, you know, the winners move forward. I could see something like that happening maybe down the road. We don't know what's going to happen there because the NCAA hasn't voted on anything yet, but there's been some recommendations uh, by the, the transformation committee is what it's called to expand playoffs and to do some things differently. And it's, it hasn't been voted on yet. So we don't know what it's going to look like. And then I, we don't know what it would be implement, how it would be implemented either. Well, and that will, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, although we're going to talk about the games of the week pretty quickly, if you get an expanding from like two thirty-two teams out of the 62, for instance, in hockey, what that does is it makes recruiting far more valuable because you always want to be one of those 32 teams. So you can say to your recruits, we're always going to be in the playoffs. We're always going to be there. We're always going to have a chance. We're not going to be like, it's not going to get to the 16 where like basically a quarter of the teams make it and the rest don't are sitting there. That cha- I think it changes the landscape of, of upsets, too. It pushes it more towards, I guess, you know, college basketball in that respect when you have that many teams in the mix. And then I'd want, I, I don't care about what conference you're in. I want one to play 32. Yeah. So it could be Bentley playing Michigan. You know, yeah. no idea, right? And then I want to see the upsets. See, the, see I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an advocate of chaos. So I want to see that transpire in that respect. Right. So from my perspective, like, how do you think that's going to, how do you think that would impact recruiting when, you know, more than 50% of the teams are going to be in the playoffs? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to, it's going to change. I think that the number one thing it would change is recruiting out of the transfer portal, because one of the things we see now is yes. that those players, that haven't had the opportunity to compete in the national tournament. And they're using their last year as a grad student, maybe trying to transfer to a program where they think will be in the national tournament so that they have a chance to compete for a national championship. Maybe they're coming from a school where that just, that hasn't been an opportunity for the first three or four years. So I definitely think it changes recruiting out of there because now those schools have a lot more, those players have a lot more schools they can potentially transfer to and, and compete nationally or, Maybe they even don't even look at transferring. Maybe they look at, at staying where they are because they go, you know what, we were we were right on the outside last year, and if we bring everybody back, now we're we're going to be there. I, I think it opens up things from that respect a lot, and then just traditional recruiting too with younger players. Like you said, it's going to be a situation where you're going to have a, a, a more than a handful of teams who are pretty much going to be able to say we're in the national tournament every year. I mean, you look at North Dakota, you look at Minnesota, you look at Denver. How many years have they been below the top 32 in the pairwise, you know, since the pairwise was not very often, maybe maybe once. (laughs) You you could be North Dakota and say, Hey, we, we would have, we've been in the national tournament in 29 out of the last 30 years. Like you're going to have an opportunity to compete for a national championship every year that you're here. That's a big selling point. Also, I think to those mid-level, low level, lower level universities who can't compete against the top end uh, recruits out of like you know high school and USHL, they start recruiting out of Europe and out of Canada, and start getting these twenty year olds coming out, right? And how does that impact? Because you can go to a twenty year old and say you got a full ride, and you know it just adds to that. So the the teams that have a harder time, say in 
in the hockey East of competing every year. So you look at, say, you know, Maine has had troubles lately. Vermont's had trouble lately. But those two universities can go out and say to the junior A kids or the European kids, hey, by the way, we only have to be here. We don't, like, we're going to make it. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, almost every team in Hockey East might make it into the top 32. So we're going to make it. We're going to play. And then we could upset some teams. So I think it gives the teams that generally wouldn't get the top end players a greater advantage, potentially a competitive advantage of recruiting players that are older, bigger, faster out of different marketplaces. Yeah. And like we've seen with the basketball tournament too, once you're there, once you're in it, anything can happen. I mean, especially when you got an older team, these aren't, these aren't 18 year old high school kids. These are seasoned kids that are playing junior A that have been playing for three or four years. So that and changes. Baseball. Yeah, that changes if, things too. That's really fascinating. If well, you've got an older group, if you've got like a group of juniors and seniors who are now 24 and 25 against a bunch of 18-year-old blue chippers, seven-year difference potentially. That's it's enormous. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out from that respect. Uh, Mike, want to want to uh, thank you once again for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And let's talk next week. All right, sounds good. Thanks. That's Mike McMahon from the College Hockey News. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio right after these messages. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We're back and brought to you by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest event developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to another level at juniorprospecthockeyleague.com. We're speaking with Patrick Williams in our segment around the AHL. And this segment, we're going to talk about First off, the Chicago Wolves. Now, yes, champions, but they've gone through some transitions this year, which is really interesting. So they have a rookie head coach in uh, Brock Sheehan, 
who I remember playing as, a, as an undersized defenseman for uh, Notre Dame University as well. So I actually remember more of a player. And then I know he had went and was an associate coach for the Chicago Steel, head coach for about a year and a half, fish two years, and then boom, jump right into uh you know, head coach for the American Hockey League. And they've had an influx of young players. They're, you know, like 20, 21, 22. So it's, there's a lot of young roster there as well. So talk a little bit about that transition of, you know, winning. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a, a, a bit of a rapid change of not only personnel of younger guys having to take bigger roles than, than having a rookie head coach as well in the American League. Yeah, dramatic change. I mean, it was about maybe a little more than two weeks after they won the Cup last year. Free agency starts. Uh, they lost Andrew Podorowski, uh back-to-back lead scorer in the league, uh, top-tier veteran. Uh, they lost C.J. Smith, who had 24 goals last year. Uh, Josh Levo, I mean, it was an absolute force in the playoffs. Um, just right down the list, I mean, you know, Jalen Chatfield was there. You know, he's, uh, he's a regular with the Carolina Hurricanes. So they are doing their job, which is good. You know, in terms of they're producing some players and they're winning at the American Hockey League level. So you're combining that those two elements, which is great. And then, you know, uh, like Stefan Nason, he had 48 goals last year. He ended up right. sticking with Carolina this year. So, you know, I think some of the plans that they had this year for the Chicago Wolves were, were changed a little bit just by, you know, some, some of those circumstances. Uh, they lost a, a ton of support role uh, players as well in the offseason. So they had a lot of uh, – you know, a lot Change of over. people to deal yeah. with, right? Like, um, you know, and then uh, look at your goalies, right? Like, you know, I mean, Alex Lyon goes to the Florida system, you know, great veteran guy. Um, yet, uh, um, Kutrikov came in late last season, he was fantastic. Um, yeah, he spent you know the better part of the first half of the year with, with Carolina. So, all those elements, you had them all together. It's a really rough start. Uh, Ryan Suzuki was injured early on in the season. So um, Mark Sheen, uh, he went kind of through a real, you know, uh, real rough uh, introduction to the. That's baptism by fire. Yeah. Um, I think to their credit, they have gotten some things on track now. Um, And you are starting to see some development. You're starting to see some of those players take off. I think the player I've been really, really pleased by was uh, Jamison Reese. uh, Yeah. Second rounder. Last year was a kind of a rough year. I, I think to some extent he got a little bit uh, lost in the shuffle. Just there was so much talent around him. And, and he's a young player too, right? Like young that's player, a- young, feisty, kind of plays a good chippy game. Uh, this year he's really responded well, I think, having a bigger role and really kind of being asked to be one of the guys. Um, uh, so, like, I think he's been a real nice success story there. Uh, uh, Vasily Ponomarov, um, you know, another 20-year-old, came over late last year, so he got a little bit of that uh, introduction to the pro game. Um, tailed off a little bit, obviously, in the playoffs, which is a whole other uh, beast. Um, but uh, this year, I think, he's really rebounded nicely. And, uh, you know, he's he's had some nights where, you know, he looks like one of, if not the best players on the ice. Um, so, uh, Suzuki's also he's he's getting back on track. Jack Drury's the interesting one though for me. He was such a such a force last year, kind of down the stretch and in the playoffs. Um, was one of the last cuts in Carolina's training camp. Um, he's, he's this production kind of hasn't been there this year with Chicago. I really want to see him now here in you know the latter part of February, March, and April. See if he can really take a step forward. 
yeah. almost carry this team, right? Because this team is going to be in a real, real tight battle for the playoffs. You know, as of uh, you know the start of the week, they're ten points out of the spot. You know, now they do have three games in hand, and in the American League, ten points out is not necessarily uh, a death sentence. Yeah, right, because you play pretty much all divisional games, so you can make up a ton of ground pretty quickly, right? It's not like the NHL, and I think that's where people sometimes miss that point that. Um, you know, if you're 10, 10 back in the, the NHL, forget it. But here, like, you know, you, you, you can have a three and three weekend. If you, if you play the right combination of teams, you can right. definitely make up some ground fast. So that's, that's what kind of keeps the, the, the playoff races in this league really fluid and, and really difficult to, to uh, project. So that's the good news for the Wolves. The, you know, for all the trouble they had early on in the year, they've gotten it back on track. Now they can make March, April, possibly real meaningful hockey. And that's what you want if you're the Carolina Hurricanes. You don't want your players kind of running off the street. You want them going through that experience. 100%. Let's talk about the Cleveland Monsters as well, a farm team for the Columbus Blue Jackets. And and thoughts about the influx of some young players coming in there. And I like looking at seeing the next steps for players and thoughts on guys like, you know, David Juracek, uh, who came in. You know, I think what was really important for Juracek is having that great World Juniors, like being able to have that and be the man on that team and mm-hmm. um, surprise some people and then come back and take that confidence with him into into the, back into the American Hockey League and, and how that's affected the organization and how the young players have taken another step. Yeah, I mean, Juracek's been, I mean, six overall pick, right? You know, comes in the AHL at age 18. And, you know, another first-year head coach in the AHL, Trent Fogler. Right. You know, I've, I've spoken with him about Juracek uh, pretty much, pretty pretty at length. And just, um, I think with him, it's almost like you have to kind of tame him a little bit. He's kind of like that wild stallion that just wants right. to, to run. And, you know, kind of the motor's always going. You know, like, you got to. You got to pace yourself a little bit, and certainly in the NHL, if you're going to play there, you have to know when to, you know, when to Pick pinch, spots. when not to pinch, right? Like, you know, you know, all those elements are going to, you know, being an effective defenseman. But you know, in terms of like, you know, the raw skill, the raw talent, uh, we, we certainly saw that. If, if you're not familiar with the NHL, you certainly saw it at the World Junior Championship. Um, you know, you know, leading the Czech side. I mean. Uh, he was fantastic there, you know, and so like I do have to remind myself sometimes he's only uh, yep. just turned nineteen, and you know it does take a little bit of time. But I mean, I think the the Blue Jackets uh, got a great one in him. Um, it's been a rough year uh, in Cleveland, just all the problems in Columbus. You know, we've seen that all the time, where it just filters down. But they are they are coming. Well, sure, well. when there's injuries and stuff, then you get call-ups and then you have to try to supplement your roster. And then the coach in the American league is trying to like manage the best he can as well. And you put younger players into positions. Maybe they're not quite ready for in that respect. And, you know, so you get guys like, and then you got to lean on guys like Emil Benstrom and, and Trey fix and like those kind of guys that there's just, there's more on their plate from that respect. And sometimes there'll be hiccups along the way in that respect. And that's, you know, it's why the American League is a developmental league. You're allowed to experiment and put more on a guy's plate, you know, and you just sort of like balance that every, almost like any, every 20 games, there's an increment of like really assessing what your players are going through. Absolutely. So sometimes it feels like every weekend, right? Like, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, depending on, you know, the state of your team and the state of your NHL team. I mean, I mean, I know coaches, they, they show up at, you know, the rink at seven in the morning. They're not entirely sure who they're going to be 
uh, who's dressing, dressing tonight? Night, yeah. You know, like uh, it kind of depends who shows up today. Um, so that, 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 that's part and parcel of coaching the American hockey league. If, uh, uh, you know, it's the old adage, like if you can coach in the HL, you can probably coach anywhere because just there are so many moving parts, so many different elements that you have to deal with. Um, but, um, you know, it, it is a great, uh, a great way to really, uh, like you said, baptism by fire and come in and, uh, learn, learn the pro game really well. Uh, how much, um, in your conversations with the coaching staff, you know, has been a transition anytime you have just like, obviously, Talk about Chicago is having a rookie head coach in there and then him trying to feel out, you know, his players and what they can do and what's next steps for them, you know, because each coach sees it through a different lens and a different perspective. Yeah. And then like, uh, yeah, for Brad Sheen, like he's coming in from the USHL, you know, like, yeah, you know, he did play pro some, but you know, he has a college background. So that's, you know, different elements and you're filling big shoes, Ryan Warsawski. I mean, you got to replace the guy that just won the cup. Yeah, uh, no, no, hundred percent. It's not yeah. an easy uh, move, uh, role to step into. So uh, you know, he's uh, he's definitely had an intro, you know, heck of an introduction. But uh, same thing with Vogelhuber, who was kind of almost a de facto head coach last year. Right, he was uh, uh, had some uh, you know uh, shoulder injury, so he wasn't able to do a whole lot of coaching. So Vogelhuber kind of really did get you know that that that, that kind of thrown into that deep end. So that, that, but that, hey, that's the nature of the American Hockey League. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, he's not that swim. far, and he's not that far removed from playing either. No, no, just his a last few year, years, right? Yeah, and, he was like uh, 2018 was his last year, and then he directly came into being assistant coach. And then, because yeah. he's still a young guy, I think he's only, a yeah, real young, real personable, uh, yeah. connects really well with his young players. And, like, you know, he's just, Kind of just an upbeat guy, like you know, like I mean, he which does is have, good for like a team that's struggling, and a good for like a young team is you need a little yeah. bit of like not you're not going to be coddled, but you need some positivity. <laughs> it's like that matters, yeah. right? Like it's it's definitely structured there, and he definitely yeah, he's firm, but yeah, you can't come in there, especially with young struggling players. You can't come in there, you know, just you know whipping them you know, all just, the time. They just yeah, can't. You, know, yeah. like you have yeah. to like, especially in this day and age, I mean, coaches talk about all the time, you know, like players, they need a lot more nurturing, a lot more handholding, uh, a lot more kind of two-way discussion. It's just a different, right. different uh, beast these days. hundred percent. Well, Patrick, thank you very much for coming on the show again, giving us some insight of the American hockey league and look forward to talking to you next week. Sounds great. Thank you. That's Patrick Williams from NHL.com and AHL.com. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after this. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using 
Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. This is Hockey Prospect Radio, powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to another level at Junior Prospect Hockey League. Dot com. We're speaking with Mark Cronowit, the CEO of Silent Ice. We're talking about game changers. And this week's topic, we're going to get a little bit about into player development models, but also the different paths that players take to get to a point of elite. And we consider elite uh, junior hockey leagues, such as, you know, the Canadian Hockey League, the USHL. Those are the top ends. Um, there are elite players in junior A. It's just, it's a matter of depth. You know, we, yes, we have a lot of teams. So, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of depth to have the type of teams that are like, say, the Seattle Thunderbirds or the London Knights on a regular basis. So you look at this year, the Winnipeg Ice in the Western Hockey League, we look at from that perspective, and we have them out in the queue as well, where you have certain teams that are so utterly dominant that they might lose 10 games all year. So, and that's a situation we're currently looking at in the Western Hockey League with the ice in the Eastern Conference and Seattle in the West. Yeah, and you think that with Kamloops hosting, uh, they're super strong on the West, and you've got Portland, which has a really great team. But, you know, you really look at it, and I think about over the last, you know, 20 years of watching Memorial Cups, and, you know, this idea of super teams comes up. And, you know, I think it's hard to argue with uh, kind of the path that Seattle's taken. I was watching the game the other day, and, you, you know, you've got three first-round draft picks up front, and you've got three, two, two guys on the back end. You've got Reed Schaefer, who's a first-rounder with Edmonton. Uh, you've got Brad Lambert with Winnipeg. And uh, you got Dylan Gunther, who just came back from Phoenix. And on the back end, you got Brad Allen, you've got uh, Krachinski. you got five first-round draft picks out there, Shane. And when do you ever see that on a, on a single hockey team? And what I find kind of interesting about, you know, you say those three players, they all kind of took a different path, Um you know, uh, both Gunther and Schaefer came out of the CSSHL. What's kind of interesting where somebody like Gunther was this top, top-end prospect since he was 12, 13, 14 years old all the way through versus Reed Schaefer, who was an eighth-round WHL Bantam pick. And to think about how many athletes he'd have to pass to move all the way from, you know, eighth round in the WHL Bantam draft when he's 15 years old all the way up to being a first-round draft pick in the NHL just really is a testament to the development. Uh, the other guy there, Brad Lambert, what a different path has Brad taken to get there and, you know, spending his time there with the man in Manitoba and then being released to come back and get an opportunity to win Memorial cup. Brad, he took a totally different path. And so you got these three guys out there that have kind of taken a different path in net. You know, we think about Thomas Millich, Thomas has been passed over Shane twice in, in two drafts. 
and yet he's he's Canada's goalie there and helps us helps Canada win a a world junior gold. And then the other guy in net, Scotty Ratzlaff. You know, Scott Ratzlaff came out of the Hockey Super League. He, you know, was in that league and then had to transition over. He spent a year in Lloydminster and then came up to Seattle. But, you know, he was scouted and found in the Hockey Super League. And uh, I think Scott has a really good chance to be in one of the top two goalies drafted this year. So that's just the front end. And then you say, well, what comes in behind that? It doesn't stop. You know, Colton Dock is back. Uh, high draft pick. Jared Davidson, high draft uh, pick, picked by the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, they throw that and then get Krankovic who gets sent out there and he's a 20 year old that hasn't been drafted yet, but he's probably going to be a really good pro and you just keep on pushing through the line. And then you got to go out against Jordan Gustafson and Siona, Las Vegas and Calgary. And uh, you know, when you look at everybody taking those paths, you look at the guys that are coming into the draft this year, which is, you know, you look at Grayson Sachin, Grayson Sachin uh, is taking one of the most unique paths. He was a first round pick out of the U S draft for red deer um, and came out of the UNDP UNDP. T, pardon me, Shane. Did I get that right? UNDP program. Yeah, U.S. National Development Program. Thank yeah, you. No, yeah, it's a nasty yeah. one. It's a nasty one. You know, there's a Canadian kid down in Minnesota playing. Uh, decides to not go down that path. Everybody probably thought he was going to the USHL um, or staying in that program. And Seattle was able to attract him. And that's partially how you build a super team. You, you got to find players that have come from different development models and how they came into the thing. And then once they get there, how do you kind of continue to progress them and, and make them elite players so that they can transition into pro hockey? Well, see, and that's the biggest factor is the development model of the individual teams. Now, the majority of CHL teams, you use an example, USHL is no different. You know, when you get a team that is consistently good for three years in a cycle, then there tends to be a little bit of a rebuild because you've bled off some assets to really stack your team up to make a run. There are some exceptions like the London Knights in Ontario, uh, Quebec, Quebec, obviously Ramparts in the queue. I would look at uh, the Chicago steel and USHL, you know, from that respect, Portland almost never rebuilds. Absolutely. Now the, di the difference is part of it is they're recruiting. They have great recruiting there and there's reasons why, I mean, it's the people who run these organizations. There's a recruitment relationship with agents, but also NHL teams, you know, look at the Hunters, uh, Patrick Waugh, um, obviously, you know, Johnson in, in Portland, that they have tactical advantages. Um, the, the, you know, Chicago Steel has tactical advantages too. But to overcome that, I think you really have to look at your individual model. Do you have a partnership with a junior A team to help filter some guys in who are not going to want, who don't want to go the college route, but want to be able to, and they'll be end up being a little bit late bloomers, but that stacks up your team in the second and third lines, fourth to sixth defensemen. But then once you get those players there, it's okay. What's your development off the ice in terms of your cognitive development? That's really critical. Um, I think people sometimes overlook that the, how critical that is, but then also look at what's your skills and, and skating development and who you have, who, who do that. That's a critical component, leadership components in that as well, because if you can't help the player increase what's going on in their brain, because the brain pushes everything, pushes the body, forget about it. You'll never have that turnover consistently. You'll end up dumping and then you got to do that rebuild again. And that's to me is the key because if you can sustain that for two cycles for six years, then people are attracted to go there. And that's the key. You got to get over that hump, right? To be a good team for six years, get through two full cycles. 
Yeah, it's it's a huge challenge. And, you know, I think the proof is, is that, you know, you, you know, you're able to acquire players through, through the drafts uh, in, into, into the CHL. And therefore when you draft, and if you've given up a bunch of first round picks and these players to bring in like uh, Gunther and Allen and these guys to, to make yourself stronger, you better be really confident in your ability to take a fourth or fifth or sixth round pick. And that's why, you know, you have to look at guys like Nico Mayatovic, like Nico's, you know, a later pick. Uh, and we talked about Reed Schaefer, these guys, and that's the only way that you can kind of become sustainable in that model because, you know, you do give up those top end picks and, and a lot of them actually in the CHL. And there's some criticism of teams who say, well, you know, we're going to push at it. And generally speaking, you end up with teams in the next year uh, that win less than 10 games. And that well, is not the intention. How do you get around that? The only way to do it is with great, great, to your point, great drafting and great recruiting, making sure you get your players. But you well, also have to be willing to find them in different places, James. How much does... Like we'll use Seattle as an example. How much does the partnership with, say, the Spruce Grove Saints help them in terms of that they have a pipeline? Like they know there are certain players who want to go in the Western League, and that you guys can have a combined developmental program and with similar with the same philosophy, so that you know there is a transition. So when they come out of Spruce Grove into say Seattle, that there's not this hiccup. Like it's a smooth transition of going from one league to the other into like a more competitive environment in the Western league. In some, I, in some I, cases, I, it's a different, you know, it's funny. Cause I could, again, I'm not dating myself, but 30 years ago, uh, a lot of the guys, when I played for the St. Albert saints at the time, we had a lot of our guys, the, the primary focus was not actually going to the NCAA. It was trying to get yourself back up to the Western leagues. So we had guys that would go back and forth, but to your point, Shane, I, I think a guy like Matt Rempe is a really, really good example so Rempe was really tall. Obviously, you know, I think he's the tallest guy in pro hockey right now. He's about six, nine, six, eight and a half. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he, his body hadn't really filled out yet. And he was not ready for the Western Hockey League as a 16 year old. So he played for the Spruce Grove Saints. And under Rob Skluruk and Bram Steven, who've been known to develop great players, you know, always have a winning program, never rebuild, just reload. He was able to get that experience on a really high end team. And then transition that and then 17 gets drafted and, you know, now he's down in the American Hockey League. But, you know, I, I, I think that somebody like that, if he would have been put back into midget hockey, probably would have been lost. You know, he really needed that experience. He needed that experience getting the junior junior player. So I think when you're looking at those teams, it's actually a new model. Uh, you know, Seattle is now has players. Coster Dunn came out of uh, came out of the Spruce Grove Saints. Popovich came out of the Spruce Grove Saints. What most people don't know is that during the COVID uh, maybe part of their success is, is that during COVID, they had the opportunity to bring a bunch of those players came back and actually were able to play for the Saints during COVID. So when the Western Hockey League was shut down, you, know, you had Jared Davidson and Siona and those guys. Those guys were all and Rempe. Those guys, Tyrell Bauer, who's in uh, is in the Winnipeg organization. Those guys all came back and played uh, played junior A hockey and didn't lose that development during that period. And maybe that's part of the success. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer that. You know, junior hockey is the best path. And for a lot of players, it's how do you get that opportunity when you're a little bit younger to get the development? And it doesn't translate immediately into a game when you're 16 years old. So people see the, you know, less than 10 points for a player or less than 20 points. It doesn't, that isn't how you measure your success. It's whether or not you're getting the development, whether or not you're getting that, those challenges every day. And, you know, I always say it's not, you don't always win on the ice, but you got to win in practice, especially when you're a young guy and your minutes get limited. Uh, so, but that's how you develop. So then the following year, when you're actually looking at an organization like Seattle or Winnipeg, where they have to actually 
they lose all those players, kind of like the Oil Kings did last year. What have you done to make sure that those other athletes have still developed? And I, I think really that's the secret sauce. Well, Mark, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show again. We really appreciate it and look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks, Shane. Have a great week. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back right after this. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat stats video editing tools visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics outside edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players outside edge hockey development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity our strength skills and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength speed and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. This is Hockey Prospect Radio, powered by Junior Hockey Prospect League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at juniorprospecthockeyleague.com. We're speaking with Dave Poulin behind the curtain segment. Uh, this week's topic is assessing the cost-value line of young players and prospects leading up to the trade deadline or making trades in general from that respect. And, you know, you've been fortunate to be not only an executive in in an NHL head office, but also been on the college side as well as a coach for Notre Dame and can see it from different perspectives and, you know, your, your background um, in business Talk about the challenge and difficulties of assessing a cost value line on a pl- on a really young player who is maybe still in their entry level deal, and also prospects who, you know, maybe in the American League or in a junior ranks or in Europe, and trying to assess what their value is versus what their cost is, as you're sort of moving towards there's kind of that window of entry level and even their bridge deal. Start with youth, Shane, and and it's a real challenge with the younger players. And when I first entered the college game in 1995 at Notre Dame, it was common that everyone waited until senior year, until second semester senior year, and that was when the offers were made to the players. And what happened was the best schools would be poised, the powerhouse institutions would be poised, and the you know 60 odd numbered teams 
and they would get the best players. So what happened was other schools that were maybe just a tear down in terms of uh, perception started going out earlier and earlier. And there were rules about when you could first contact players and when you could get commitments. And it was a written commitment versus a verbal commitment. But then you start hearing about, well, he's committed and he's an 11th grader and then earlier and earlier. And then so you tried to get ahead of it, you know, other schools and they were committing 10th graders. And it was just far too young to get an assessment of a player. There's so many variables at that point. And it could be just the environment they're in. I mean, there were commitments before kids even got to the national team in Ann Arbor, you know, which started in the late 90s. And so they were going into that program with commitments. But when that first started, you know, once you got accepted that program, you were even more heavily recruited, but you were still in the 11th grade. And so many factors, size and development, maturity level, what the environment you were coming from was. And, you know, you think of, you know, we recruited a player, Johnny Robleski was from Nina, Wisconsin. And, you know, a town of 10,000 people and where had he played growing up and who he competed with are the kids from the Iron Range from up north, you know, in War Road or International Falls or some of the towns up there, Grand Rapids up north in the Iron in the Iron Range. And so it was a real challenge to try and, and factor it in. And it took a trained eye and guys who had done it for a long time to have comparison points and say, OK, well, you know, this is what this player looks like and another player from that area to look like this at the same point, but, you know, seeing Dustin Bufflin at 16 years old. Exactly. You know, what did he look like? He was enormous. He was, you know, he was so big. 285 pounds. And just like, he was huge. Yeah. He looked like an offensive lineman. Yeah. He was bigger at 16 than he was most of his career. And so all these different factors go into play, but it really is about putting a system in place that's exclusive to what you do. And, each school is different. And don't forget, um, schools had to factor in academic profiles. And very often, the admissions department wanted nothing to do with telling you that a 10th grader could go you know, to your school. Like They wanted to see more numbers and more grades and in later years of grades. So it just meant you had to put a system in place that worked for you. And then moving on, you know, when I was with the Leafs, um, it was a numerical system. It was... It was, you know, different on the pro and the amateur side. And those are two very different things. And what it really meant was you had to communicate at a whole different level. And I, I'm always intrigued now when deals are put together and they include a prospect, someone that's been drafted, but maybe hasn't played in the NHL. And the communication that has to go on between the pro and the amateur side, the responsibility of the GM to make sure that communication is clean or the director of the department and, and understand that, you know, you know, we haven't even talked about different countries yet and how they develop and, you know, how they age. But really, it's about putting a system in place that works best for you and and knowing what you what you need and what works at your specific team. Right. There's also the you got the amateur side, you got the pro side in terms of this scouting departments. You have player development that has to be involved. Obviously, your whatever human performance department you have has to be involved because there is a linkage between the past, the present and the future. And you have to try to bind all three those three together. And all those departments each have a role to play within the, the story that you're telling 
about that player and the data that you can collect so that you know your management staff can make the appropriate decisions. Talk about how challenging that is, is to bind and integrate all that data and information together. And that's what it is. It's no different from merging your geographical lists when you're doing your amateurs, you know, your final amateur draft list. But if you think about <clears throat> that communication, there is so much projection. A pro scout tells you what the player is and if there remains an upside there or just what he is and how he helps you. An amateur scout tells you what the player is going to be or projects to be in his eyes. And he's using his experience of like players that have been through similar channels that can fit in and do it. And, and then you've got to merge those two things. And there's some of the deals that are being made now where you'll see, okay, there's two draft picks in that deal. There's a, an NHL player. There's also a name we really haven't heard a lot of before. And that's a player that team A had drafted and is either in their system or went to college. Or And a couple of examples of that would be um, would be the Winnipeg Jets. And so let's let's look at two deals they made. The Truba deal, they got a player included named Neil Pion, which a lot of people didn't know a lot about at that point. He had a limited NHL career, but he'd had a great college career. And then they did the same thing in the Andrew Kopp deal with Morgan Barron, who had played at Cornell. And, you know, Morgan Barron had a very limited pro side but then you go back to your amateur guys and say you know where did we have him in the draft and the rangers took him you know where they took him where did we have him and where have we watched him progress since that point so that's why when when guys go to games they're writing reports on good players they're not just writing reports on players they've drafted or it's very common to write if, if a player that's been drafted by another team and is in a lower level a college level or a junior level has a great game you're going to rate him as well and you know, it's you, never know. you never know when that name is going to come up. And if you're asked about it, you better know that player and that name, because it may be a piece like I'm just, you know, that I've just referred to. And, you know, the, the clear cut top picks are just that. And, and everyone knows who they are. It's, it's the next tier of players that are going to supplement the majority of your team. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because if you look back at past history, just didn't say the salary cap era of like 2006 to 2015, and you look at the number of players that play more than 200 games from the fourth round to the seventh round, on average every year, it's only 15 players. So you better make sure that you can get one of those players and that whether that's in your own draft or inquiring them in a trade saying, wait a minute, you know, we had them here but we look at his developmental path over the last couple of years. And maybe now he's a 20 or like 21 and just coming out of college. Okay. Well then that's a player that's worthwhile, or maybe he excels more in obviously in the American hockey league because he's better in a structured system. Like there's so many of those different variables in place. There really are. And everybody has a numerical system on, at the highest level on the pro side. And, you know, maybe for a, you know, and teams, do it differently, top six, bottom six, top nine, bottom three, whatever it may be. But, you know, a first-line player, you know, it may be a scale of 10. Um, and then if you're in the second line, you're, you know, in the top line, you're in the eights. There are exceptional, exceptional, you know, guys that creep into the nines, but their number usually starts with nine, two, and that would be Connor McDavid type of players. Right. Um, you know, and and then you get into the eights and those are your, your stars and your superstar players. And, and it sounds like a harsh system to say they'd only be in the eights, but you have to leave an upside for when Connor McDavid comes along. Of course. You simply do. And then if your third line is in the sixes, um, there's a range in the sixes. Like 
I would rather be told that a player, his number starts with a six and he's his third liner. He could play up to the second line, but I'd rather know he's definitely, he's a, I'd rather ha- know that he's a really good third line player in that role yeah. than have a false number say, well, he could play up on the second line. Um, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather have the, the bottom level depicted by the number. Right. Say there's an upside to it. Yeah. The difference between the ceiling and the floor for sure. Uh, thank you very much, David. Once again, we really appreciate your insight getting in, getting towards the playoffs and towards especially the trade deadline. So look forward to speaking to you next week. And this has been another edition of Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM, NHL Network Radio, powered by Instat and Junior Hockey Prospect League. Uh, I'm Shane Malloy. Thank you t- for all our guests. You can listen to our show on the po- any of our podcast network and the Sirius, Sirius XM app and our YouTube channel. And for everyone out there, stay safe, and we will see you at the rink. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, bantam and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca.